Is Antarctic science worth the carbon miles? That's the question that Antarctic ecologist Dr Dana Bergstrom tackled this week when she gave the 2023 Alan Sefton Memorial Lecture at the University of Wollongong. The lecture is named after an employee of the Port Kembla Steelworks who devoted his spare time to environmental science and conservation in the Illawarra, work that was recognised by an Order of Australia and a lecture that's been running now for 30 years, since 1993. Dr Bergstrom's worked for the Australian Antarctic Division, studying and identifying risks to Antarctic ecosystems. And I suppose she's now been pondering the extent to which one of the risks to those Antarctic ecosystems is scientists like her. Dr Bergstrom's now a honorary senior fellow at the University of Wollongong, and I'm very pleased to say that Dana Bergstrom joins us now on Sunday Extra. Welcome, Dana. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Dylan. It's lovely to talk to you. Great speaking with you too. Before we get on to your lecture, could you tell us a little bit about your Antarctic career? Well, I've just become a senior fellow at the University of Wollongong. I'm a bit worried about the term senior, <laughs> but when I think about it, um, I now have 40 years of Antarctic experience because I began as a very, very young 21-year-old um, going south to Macquarie Island on the old Danish ship Vanilla Dan. So, I I think I hold the case of being the first female scientist to have their entire career in, in Antarctic mm. issues, which is sort of good and bad at the same time. I wish we had a, a longer legacy of Antarctic women. Well, let's move on to the lecture. Uh, the online environment can be a pretty toxic place, and some people believe in the maxim, don't read the comments. But it was actually braving the comments section of an article that in a way led to you exploring this question, is Antarctic science worth the carbon miles? Could you tell us about that? I was interviewed by a, a journalist from The Guardian, and it was a very long interview, one hour and wide reaching. And it was about tourism in Antarctica. And I was sort of talking about how important the biodiversity is in Antarctica. And I mentioned a comment that tourism had gone from nature-based, and then I dropped the phrase ego-based tourism, <laughs> test your testosterone in Antarctica with hindsight was, um, oh, gosh, it was just a candy to a baby. Yeah, no surprise that made the article. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> my bad. Um, and uh, most comments came back saying that people could see that Antarctic tourism was perhaps getting a bit too big and needed controlling in Antarctica. But one one person uh, took offence and described my comments as being hypocritical, self-righteous and dismissive um, and reflected the attitude of the scientific community towards tourism and as if the ice and penguins didn't know the difference uh, and then suggested that the National Antarctic Programs had a far greater environmental footprint um, and record environmental damage than all of tourist expeditions. And that's what I started going, hmm, is that right? Because it sounded like an ouch moment. Uh, but as it turns out, I've worked with colleagues and we've done a lot of work on Antarctic footprint. So it was the area that I knew. So that that's, was the reason why the lecture is, you know, is Antarctic science worth the footprint? And spoiler alert, the answer is it is. Good, good. Well, that's reassuring to hear. How did you go about making these this assessment? And I suppose that probably takes us back to this question of what do we mean when we say environmental footprint or I suppose also another familiar term, carbon footprint? Yeah, there's a whole range of terms um, that people have used, particularly in the Antarctic Treaty language. And we broke 
what we call the human footprint, which is a big picture impact in Antarctica to a number of things. There's physical footprint, which includes disturbance and buildings and contamination, non-native species. And then there's the visual footprint. You know, can you see a station? And in that case, you can. Um, and then there's indirect things as carbon footprints. And when you look at the term carbon footprint, I mean, the, the oldest phrase I can find of anyone using it was in 1985. And it was in a master's thesis out of Turkey, which looked at um, the footprint of carbon in Portland cement and whether you could use something like magnesium. But then it sort of got captured by the big oil companies and then they sort of put it onto other people. What is your carbon footprint? And so the term carbon footprint, just been use of carbon, suddenly got co-opted to Instead of looking at the whole of society and our use of fossil fuels, it was onto individuals. What is your carbon footprint? And so it's a way of sort of taking the the, the pressure off um, these big companies and putting it onto individuals. And so that's where the term carbon footprints have got utilised in the language of um, of what we know today. So you've done some calculations, Dana. Where did you get to in terms of an answer uh, and I suppose the process of meeting that challenge to compare the relative environmental damage of tourism in the Antarctic and the National Antarctic Science Programs? Well, looking at those categories, disturbance footprint is is national programs are bigger because tourism um, doesn't have a a building footprint on the on on the ice or on the land in Antarctica because most tourism is based in in sh- ship um, ship travel so it's a bit like pairing apples and oranges but the disturbance footprint is bigger than that of national programs because of the legacy of being there since you know, heroic eras but we've actually added it up a colleague called Sean Brooks who worked with me he did the task of actually measuring the the sort of disturbance footprint of every single station in Antarctica, every single building, all 5,000 of them. Wow. And it turns out to be quite a small footprint. It's about, when you add them all up, it's about 22 MCGs. And as I said, there's about 5,000 buildings. But the problem with them is that most of those buildings are also where the wildlife is. So they're around the coast area. So, it's, But they're, they're when you add them all up. Um, but the thing is that most... Um, Ice-free areas are really, really tiny compared to the size of the continent. It's um, 0.4% of the whole of the Antarctic continent is actually ice-free. So the footprint of, of disturbance and buildings is bigger for the national program. But the thing that we're having with tourism now is that we have over 100,000 people visiting every every year in Antarctica, and they go to the same places, and then they they have this amazing sort of ballet where one ship comes in and 100 people will get off. And then they go back on and have morning tea and then another 100 people get off. And they're walking over the same place every time, every time. And then they go off and another ship comes in. Um, Antarctic tourism tries to pretend that they're the only people there. Um, there's only one ship at a time. But there's can be a whole range of ships around, particularly in the Antarctic Peninsula. So in terms of visitation, Antarctic tourism is far greater than the national programs and done a, a back of the envelope calculation and there's not that many people when you add up from the heroic era through to the Operation High Jump and then the Antarctic national programs today where they have a maximum of about 10,000 people on the on the ice or on the ice-free areas every every year. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Dr. Dana Bergstrom, who's given the Alan Sefton Memorial Lecture on the question of, is Antarctic science worth the carbon miles? What other types of footprint did you compare, Dana? 
Well, then comes to the actual carbon footprint. And when you have, you know, a whole range of ships going down as part of tourism, tourism is bigger in terms of, of impact. And there's this thing that's now scientists starting to understand, which is called black carbon, which is a soot that comes out of out of ships and then deposits on the ice. And they're, they're actually looking at the impact and that's sort of contributing to the melt of ice in Antarctica now. Yes, obviously you and your colleagues have applied some rigour to trying to measure the comparison, but I was interested as well, just from your observation of the environment down there, can you really discern significant impacts from the increased levels of tourism these days? Uh, you can certainly see tracks and a lot of some penguin areas have been habituated to tourists coming and what we don't yet have a handle on is sort of the introduction of non-native species. Both national programs and tourists have the chance of taking you know, sort of hitchhikers in their shoes and um, on their gear. And it's a bit hard to go to a site where there might be scientific programs and also tourism to actually go, well, was it a tourist that, that brought this bug in or this, this seed or was it a, a national program? But it's a, the risk is multiplied by the number of people that go there. So it's sort of a, a, a threat is, is more than a, um, the actual impact at the moment, but more people and then combine it with climate change, then the threat of non-native species, particularly in the Antarctic Peninsula, um, is, is quite large. And getting rid of non-native species is, is really hard. Um, and that's actually an area that you've got some really direct experience in, isn't it? I do. For many years, my favourite tool was vacuum cleaner um, and the number of pockets and shoes and you know, bait, uh, backpacks and cargo I've, uh, I've vacuumed over the years. I don't actually want to remember. Um, you don't really want to look into people's pockets. <laughs> um, but we also have experience in that have very strict rules with quarantine that yeah, our science has contributed over the, the decades with the Australian Antarctic Program, and it consists of many, many barriers. And one of the barriers is just to check for non-native species, and that's a weekly check in our hydroponics uh, systems in Antarctica because hydroponics is actually a really good way to try and reduce the number of or the threat of non-native species getting there. If you go and have a look at your lettuce from your greengrocer, you'll find there's often quite um, a number of invertebrates there. And so... People at Davis Station growing you know, clean hydroponics would check every week, except something came through, um, a little springtail. Um, and between one week and the next, there was a population um, explosion. And so suddenly we had a non-native species, a little tiny springtail, tiny microinvertebrate in a contained area in a, in a hydroponic system. And we went all out and we managed to get rid of these blighters in Antarctica. So we've we've gone from looking at the threat all the way to actually dealing with an actual um, invasion. And um, Kalembala aren't found in, in the Davis area. And so we were successful at making sure they didn't get out of the building. So it's, uh, it's good to know that even the barriers to actually finding them and then actually eradicating can work. But at our Casey station, we have a fungus gnat, a little irritating thing that comes out of, um, again, your veggies, and that lives in our sewage system. And we've been trying for over a decade to get it out of the pipes. And we think we've got rid of it, and all of a sudden, one fly turns up at the bar. Hmm. Um, I've, I've jokingly called it the bar fly. Um, and people deal with it, and then they disappear, and all of a sudden, they'll pop up somewhere else out of the sewage system. And so, yeah, they're tenacious little things, but we don't think they'd survive if they got out into the cold of Antarctica. 
environmental damage in some ways might be easier to measure than I suppose the flip side of what your lecture considers, which is how to measure or assess something inherently more vague, like the value of science. How did you go about sort of slicing and dicing and assessing that side of things? Well, science is a value proposition. And so how do you ask that question? And I thought, well, go where the money is. Um, And so there's a, a new foundation in Australia called the Antarctic Science Foundation. And I had a look at their website to see what they you know, what they argue to support in Antarctic science. They're like, here, come and come and give your, you know, your philanthropic money to us for these reasons. Um, and it sort of breaks down into a number of areas. There's some fundamental science, there's a critical bit about understanding climate and the effects of climate change, so conservation and sort of environmental stewardship, and then also things like science, tech and spin-off. And so if you look at Antarctic science, particularly coming out of the Australian Antarctic program, we we do produce incredible, valuable Antarctic science from the fundamentals in climate. So, you know, we we understand that the overturning circulation that sort of drives the temperatures around the planet um, is slowing down in Antarctica. This last summer and this winter, we we have this incredible issue when sea ice is just not forming properly. You know, we're calling a so what's called a seven or six sigma event. So the standard deviation of the main sea ice around Antarctica at the moment is six standard deviations away from what it should be. And that's sort of like a chunk of sea ice the size of Greenland. So our fundamental physical science is really good, as is our fundamental biological sciences. And we, we come across really important um, information about these life at the end of what I call the planetary spectrum. And then there's also the impacts of change in Antarctica and impacts of climate change. And at the moment, I've I spent some carbon miles and went to a conference in New Zealand um, where all Antarctic science biologists got together. And the stories that were coming out of the most recent research um, is showing a continent under very fast change from whales to penguins to mosses to microbes. Things are, are responding to the change that's happening in Antarctica. So understanding that change, having this little sentinel at the end of the planet, I think is worthwhile studying and spending the carbon miles for. Well, I'm very relieved to hear that after four decades of doing your work in Antarctica, you've you come to the conclusion that the Antarctic science is worth the carbon miles, but it seems like it's been a, a really thought-provoking exercise to try and break it down. Is that is that right for you, Dana? Yes, it has been. Um, I'm sure there's a bias there because one wants to support what, what um, you know, you've been pursuing uh, as your career. Um, as uh, so George Bernard Shaw says, you know, the true joy of life is you're being used to for a purpose um, recognised by yourself as a mighty one. So I'm sure there's some ego there if I go back to the original uh, criticism of of my science. Um, but I think the answer is yes, Antarctic science is worth the carbon miles, but it, it must meet a critical or fundamental need um, being applied or or pure science. Um, it does feed into our, our, our knowledge of the planet and you should only do it if the science can only be done in Antarctica. I mean, if you can do it in Australia, then you shouldn't be going to Antarctica. You shouldn't be spending those carbon miles. And and I think for scientists looking at their holistic approach to, to life, you, you have only a certain amount of carbon that you can afford to use each 12 months. And if you travel into Antarctica, then 
you know, use that as part of your sort of budget um, and then live frugally with regard to carbon elsewhere. And the same goes for everyone. Kathy Foley, our chief scientist, was saying that um, we have to really increase our reduction of carbon use. Um, I think it was eight times is what was her recommendation. And so collectively, we have responsibility to do that both in our society and how we construct our society with the use of fossil fuels and in our day and day lives. Dana Bergstrom, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. You're welcome. You have a lovely day. That's Dr. Dana Bergstrom, Antarctic ecologist and now honorary senior fellow at the University of Wollongong. And Dana gave the Alan Sefton Memorial Lecture earlier this week. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.